Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to All the Tea in History, our special series entitled Quar and Tea, uh, where we are going to be discussing plagues of the past and all of the good things that go along with that. Um, I don't have any fun facts about me because this is not a fun fact situation. Um, how about how are you handling quarantine? Yeah, I'm doing good. Uh, I've cleaned my refrigerator. I've cleaned my pantry. Uh, I clean my kitchen. I clean my living room and my bedroom. So everything is brand new. And I built us a studio in my basement as Yay. well. Yes, Jillian just up and built us a podcast studio <laughs> in her basement. So just casually one night. You know. And if you do... If you do notice a change in any sort of audio quality for this episode and our other episodes in this series, it is because we are now recording in multiple locations in an effort to maintain social distancing. Allison is recording from the comfort of her home, and Hannah is exactly six feet away from me. Socially distant. <laughs> but still. <laughs> yes, welcome from the Swanson studio. Um, I've got my own tea here. Uh, this is Allison, by the way, and I am drinking a caffeine-free raspberry mojito tea out of my hedgehog just rolling with it mug, which pretty much sums up my week. What are you? Yeah. <laughs> what tea are you guys drinking? Um. Well, this is Hannah, by the way, and I'm handling quarantine by stress walking. So I've logged. 20 miles since this whole thing got started. <laughs> Holy crap. Um, which, let me tell you, that is not my usual uh, exercise level. It's usually much lower. I need to follow your example. I mean, we'll see how long it lasts. <laughs> I, uh, um, I'm drinking a, a black Irish breakfast tea because... Was it Jillian that suggested that I drink a black tea because of the black death? It was, was me. It, oh, was, it me. was Allison. Because <laughs> yeah. black. Because black. Yep. Black. And it's Irish because it's in Europe. Mm. And so was the flag. <laughs> uh, I am drinking uh, milk currently out of my husband's Carlson mug. Uh, just because I had a cookie and I don't drink <laughs> cookie tea. So mm. Teas with cookie. <laughs> Allison, how are you handling quarantine? Uh, I've been better, honestly. Um but thank you, Jill, for making the drop-off of cottage cheese and ice cream. Two very, very important uh, quarantine staples. Necessities. Yes, necessities here in this house. Um, my husband and I are both working from home, which is great. Um, my cat is not terribly thrilled, though I think he, he may become boss of this home work operation by the end of next week. Oh, become? he'll be, he'll be CCO. <laughs> become Chief yeah that's Cat fair officer. that's that's a fair assessment he definitely already is the boss uh so everybody we decided that this quarantine was necessary um thinking about uh, our current situation and thinking about oh, different epidemics that have plagued humanity um in the past um and so we each decided to tackle a particular subject. And uh, Jill, do you want to pull up a some reader mail we got this week? Yeah, I will pull up some reader mail. Let me just get over to our um, our 
mailbox, which for those of you who are not familiar, you can email us at allthetainhistory at gmail.com. We would be happy to take any and all... Uh, Virtual mail. Yeah. Don't you send us your real mail. No, no real mail. Not for at least... Six weeks. Six weeks. <laughs> mm-hmm. Many days. So... We received a request with an exclamation point from Chris Courtney. And Chris writes, hi, historians. I am really enjoying your show. I was wondering if you could do an episode or two doing a deep dive into the Spanish flu of 1918 and possibly an episode on another pandemic. I'd love to hear from some primary sources about what it was like to live through that experience. What happened to local businesses, hospitals, etc. Thank you and keep up the good work, Chris Courtney. So thank you, Chris. We are taking your words and we're going to turn them into this, I say fun little series, but we'll just say series. It's fun for... only in that, you know, we're... We always have fun. We always have fun. When we are together. That's true, but we also are... You know, see, Hannah was saying that she was stress walking. I am stress researching. So, (laughs) stress researching. Um, So, the gals decided that because uh, we would each kind of take over and uh, one episode of this little series and research a specific uh, historic plague. And uh, then our finale, I think, we'll be discussing the Spanish influenza because that, I think, is the most relevant to our current times. Also, it kind of wound up falling out. I don't want to give spoilers, but it all wound up kind of falling out to be really in line with each of our kind of passion areas, too, mm-hmm. which is oh, really Oh, totally cool. did. Mm-hmm. Totally did. So I will be discussing, um, because I have a more uh, background in and a real passion for ancient history, I decided to take an ancient plague. Hannah... I'm doing the Black Death because I really love medieval uh, English and, I guess, European history because it all kind of intersects, so you can't really just do English history. But that's my time of interest and my place of interest, so convenient to have a plague there. (laughs) So convenient for that plague. (laughs) Convenient. Convenient, yeah, exactly. Uh, And I am doing the yellow fever outbreak in Philadelphia of 1793, uh, mainly because... Uh, I lived in Philadelphia for 12, almost 13 years, uh, and also my uh, degree was in American history, uh, focusing on early American history, so I already had a pretty extensive knowledge of that epidemic. Yeah, Jillian's like the American history queen, except we're not a monarchy, so she's like the American history first lady. I'll take it. How about just make her the president? I mean, she can be. But, like, the first lady of American history sounds so dignified. It does. All right, everybody. So, this is Allison, and I will be taking us way back. Way, way back. Very far back, in fact, to 430 BCE. That is before mm. the Common Era, as they say. So, we are going to be talking today about the Plague of Athens, uh, which was... The first plague I thought of when you asked me to come up with an ancient plague, I don't know why. Um, But it was an epidemic in the Greek city-state of... Athens? (gasps) You're right! (laughs) 
And it's... Second guess, Sparta. Definitely Athens. But we'll get to Sparta. We will absolutely get to Sparta. Uh, But this takes place during the second year of the Peloponnesian War. Uh, And like many epidemics we're going to be discussing during this little mini-series, the events of wartime really impacted the spread and the social and political impacts of this disease. Now, even though this takes place literally four... Even though this takes place literally 2,400 years ago, we actually have some pretty strong sources. Uh, One of history historians' greatest sources for the Peloponnesian War is the writer Thucydides. And I've got a great picture of Thucydides here for you guys. He looks very handsome, doesn't he? He does. He has no pupils. He looks like that one guy that's always in every, like, Shakespearean show. He, oh, goodness. Derek Jacobson. Yes, I was actually, yep, he can definitely look like his, his. Wait, let me see him. His. Oh. I, isn't he Professor Kirk from the Narnia movies? No. 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 That is. He just looks like the Professor Kirk in my brain. <laughs> That's Jim Cummings. Um, I really, really love Sir Derek Jacobi. Um, oh, he looks so nice. And Elfie. <laughs> All right, and so there's kind of an ongoing conflict over which early Greek writer should be considered the father of history, Thucydides, um, who wrote from around 460 to 400, and Herodotus, this guy. I know him. Yep, he's uh, he's very well known, um, and he lived between 480s and about 425. And please see this hilarious Kate Beaton comic discussing such things. And I will pull that up for you. Who is the father of history? <gasps> oh, that's yep, amazing. so hilarious Kate Beaton comic. Um, now, the funniest thing about this is that in school, I had a bunch of these printed off and put on my notebooks for various subjects, including my ancient Greek class. Um, I, sent oh. it, I showed it to a friend who proceeded to take it from me and pass it to the professor. Without my knowledge, <laughs> um, the professor looked back at me and said, yeah, that's basically our final. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, which was true. Uh, so basically, Herodotus wrote a lot earlier, um, but was way more interested in the wacky stories he heard. And Thucydides was more interested in factual history. We read both of them mm. in college um, in that ancient, Christ- ancient Greek history course. Um, I remember actually finding Herodotus a lot more readable, um, but Thucydides was more factual, though he certainly embellished a lot because if you could remember, like, an entire funeral speech uh, verbatim for about ten pages, I think he definitely was embellishing a little bit of his own memories. Uh was he the giant ants one, or was Herodotus? Herodotus was the giant Herodotus. ants one. Um, Thucydides was the one who claimed he was totally factual, you guys. Um, he did throw some shade at Herodotus when he was writing his, um, his work. And uh, my favorite, personally, favorite quote is, So little pains do the vulgar take in the investigation of truth, accepting readily the first story that comes to hand. <laughs> hashtag giant hashtag giant ants hashtag the father of big butts um fake news <laughs> so regardless thucydides works the best for our purposes because not only did he live through and chronicle the peloponnesian war but also live through contracted and survived the plague of athens wow. 
also, not only do we have a good overview about the impacts of the disease, but also on its gory symptoms. Yay. Mm. Yay. Alrighty, so let's go to ancient Greece. Yay. We circa 430 BCE. Now, remember that the BCs uh, slash BCE says the same thing. They go backwards, which can be a little bit confusing. Um, this is going to be a really, really brief overview of the time and the place. So the area that we consider Greece today is broken up into hundreds of small city-states or polises, the centers of government and religion. Um, some of the most famous of these being Athens, Sparta, and Thebes. The big olive. Thebes. The big olive itself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, that's a reference to Disney's Hercules. Thank you, Jill. I was I literally wrote that in my notes, hoping that you would get that joke. <laughs> oh, I got it. Right. <laughs> All right. So the first two, so Athens and Sparta, are some of the largest and most distinct in terms of culture. So back in the 470s, um, many of the states, so this is about like 100 to 150 of these tiny little city-states banded together in what's called the Delian League, um, which was led by Athens to combat the pretty much constantly attacking Persian Empire. You know, like you do. Do they have jackets? <laughs> the Persians? Like cool letterman jackets for this The league? Delian League? I mean, I want yeah. a jacket. Bitchin'. The Delian League. Um, so the Delian League ends up being led by an Athenian statesman and general named Pericles. Here is he. Um... It's pretty, uh, pretty Ooh. swanky. Yeah, he was a real popular guy. I definitely wrote him. a nice face. Oh, yeah. He's, uh, he's all-around great guy. Uh, I definitely wrote a paper about him in college and remember nothing. Uh, so sorry, Professor Hollander. Uh, <laughs> so Pericles is not only known as a great military leader, note the fancy helm, um, but he's also well-known to foster the arts, culture, and even <gasps> democracy. Wait, I have a question about Pericles. Yeah. That uh, thing that he's wearing on his head, you know what it looks like to me? Hmm. It looks helmet? like a, a mask. Uh, are you... S- <laughs> are you trying to make a reference to Phantom of the Opera? Yes, of course. <laughs> and of and course, by extension... <laughs> our favorite troll person. Actual, Andrew Lloyd Webber. troll person. Which is- and if you had not, if you have not had a chance to visit Andrew Lloyd Webber's Instagram and see his tit for tat with Lin Manuel Miranda, do so at your own peril, because he's strongly serving up some original Phantom of the Opera vibes. Yeah, I don't want to really comment on it because I still have a deep, dark secret wish that he'll hear this podcast and give me tickets to his show. So, um, Andrew, if you're hearing this, I do not support this statement. Lynn, Lynn, I You're definitely support this initi- statement. And and Lynn, <laughs> yeah. Lynn, please give yeah. us tickets to anything. Just anything. Lynn, you are the opposite of a troll person. You are a, you are a god amongst men. Yes. That's he it. is definitely. You know who else was a god amongst men? Pericles. Pericles. Definitely yeah, Pericles. Alrighty. So let's go back to our map. Because to the south of uh so here we have athens little little tiny um so it's the what's the the blue circle as you can see on this map and down mm-hmm. to the south we have this big landmass, and the red circle is sparta 
Sparta. Wait, wait, Allison, can you point at that and say the famous line? This is Sparta. Oh, we can't see it. And I, I need a little more feeling from you. Which one's Sparta? The red one or the green? The blue? red dot is Sparta. This is Sparta. All right. Nice. Yay! Yay! Sparta! I actually have that written so, in my notes, but it's for later. But that's fine. Um, so, Sparta... Part of our hive mind. ...has quite a different reputation than Athens. You might be familiar if you've, you know, <laughs> taken sixth grade class on <laughs> or on Greek history. Um, isn't it like... Isn't it kind of like if it's a high school, then Sparta's like the jock... Mm-hmm. And Athens is, like, the nerdy theater kid. Absolutely. Uh, So Athens has this reputation of democracy, culture, philosophy. But Sparta, on the other hand, is heavily militarized, so you're jocks. But they're arguably actually a lot more egalitarian when it comes to those creatures called women. Women? Women. Oh, yeah. Uh, whom, Whom Athenians generally regarded as subhuman. Oh, okay. So they're like the jock on a co-ed football team. Basically, yeah. Um, okay. And then the the one that's like pretty cool if with like all of their teammates and are really supportive of them. Um, whereas the Athenians are like the ones who talk about philosophy and are the theater kid, but they're actually kind of a nice guy in uh, in actuality. You know, with the f- so like they're kind of like clicky theater kids. Well, I'm thinking more like Fedora but... Milady kind of situation. Oh. Yeah. Mm. The creepy theater the kids. Creepy theater kids. So, all right. These are vastly big generalizations, um, but, you know, that's what we're doing. Now, Sparta had become a pretty big deal during the war with the Persians. You may have heard of a specific couple of specific instances during those Persian wars. Um, our bay, David Wenham was definitely in that movie. Was he really? Yeah, he's the I, only one who actually survived. I've never actually <laughs> seen that movie. You've never seen 300? No. Where were you in 2005 or whatever that came out? I was out? nine. Oh, no. Oh, oh no. <laughs> I was not. I feel like maybe there's something in that movie. That um, but also, Gerard Butler, seen. who happened to play Phantom of the Opera, Phantom of the was Opera. also in that oh. movie. Yeah. Did he play Pericles? No, he played Leonidas. The leader of the Spartans in that particular instance. So you got the whole war with Spartans, or war with the Persians, um, which Sparta became a pretty big deal. This is Sparta, etc. And uh, Mm -hmm. they made some pretty big allies um, with Corinth and Elis, um, where I'm not actually sure where those are on this map. I think Corinth is at the top of the map of the Peloponnese. Mm-hmm. So they apparently yep. rid Corinth of tyranny. Pretty neat. Good for I them. know. And then they helped Ellis get the Olympics for that particular year. And uh, I wonder what their logo was for that year. I know. Was it Spartan? No, it was the uh, it was Ellis. Ellis who got the Olympics um, for a, uh, one of the years. I know, but what you said their logo? Do you have? No, it? I was making a joke. No, she's just making. I always like. Reference. I always like looking at the Olympic. They always make a big deal. It was just the... a single ring. Yeah, it was just a single ring. <laughs> Did you see the um the There's a meme that was going around before they postponed the 2020 mm-hmm. Olympics, 
that it was just going to be a bunch of rings. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. I would have loved that so much. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> All right. So Athens is high and mighty with their Delian League and their fancy Pericles. Uh, and they basically start amassing an empire, you know, like you do. Um, they dominate a lot of the other uh, city-states um, that had they had recently been just uh, allies with. Um, they claim huge tracts of land. Um, and they have a lot less of those independent allies and start having places that basically just pay tribute to them. Um, they build up a really powerful navy, which makes sense because if you're looking at Athens and a lot of the city-states in that area, there are a lot of islands um, on the Aegean Sea. There's a couple of oceanfront properties they'll just, want to protect. Just a, yes. It's beautiful. Um, yeah. It, it, Jill has been to Greece and sent me the pictures. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, my mouth has a cookie. I, don't know <laughs> I, talk about it. I can talk about it. Um, I have never been to Greece, but I have seen Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. So, in a way, <laughs> I have been to Greece. <laughs> I have both seen Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, both Mama Mia's. And uh, my big fat Greek wedding. <laughs> oh, you're the most qualified out Absolutely, of all of us. Absolutely, to far. discuss this ancient <laughs> Grecian history. Uh, so, anyway, uh, basically, uh, Athens is amassing this huge navy, and Sparta, being on land on one of these bigger um, islands uh, or isthmuses, has a lot of very, very popular. Excuse me, very, very successful land armies. And so after the Persians leave the area, Athens and Sparta basically play kind of one-nutmanship game. They seem like allies, but they always kind of pick in at each other, having these little little slights between each other. Um, and kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back is when um, there is an outbreak of war between two of Sparta's allies. And Athens gets involved. And a direct violation of treaties um, that they had getting into other people's affairs. And as we know from later wars, violations of treaties, getting into other people's businesses, this can generally get to start massive, massive conflicts. Uh, Basically, the Athenians tell Sparta, we're big and powerful. Look at our navy. You really shouldn't go to war with us. You should sue for peace and we'll go all back to normal. And the Spartans voted on it because there's a lot of voting back in ancient Greece, um, and they basically went, nah. Better not. Better not, yes, uh, because they blame the Athenians for breaking the peace first, which they kind of did. And then we have war. War. Circa 429, 430 BCE. Now... We remember that they, we have these differences between the Athenians with their naval-based powers and the Spartans with their land-based powers. Now, best guy ever, Pericles. Mm. Let's go look at his handsome face mm. again. Yes. So the best guy ever, trademark Pericles, convinces the citizens of Athens that instead of going in full-out war, land army against land army, they should instead consider this a defensive war, um, as there's no really way for them to beat the Spartans on land, and the Spartans really can't beat them at sea. So it would really be the sort of ongoing stalemate right exactly and so instead uh he ends up deciding that this should be a defensive war um so what they do is they rebuild what are called the long walls and yes this looks very suspiciously uh phallic 
Um, mm-hmm. So what you they do is connect the heart of the Athens polis to their port at Piraeus with these long walls here. And so they can get all their supplies from their empire via their port, and they can hunker down. And basically the idea is that they get all of the farmers that are in all the rural areas surrounding Athens and to hunker down within inside Athens' walls. And then Sparta, Pericles argues, will get bored because they're going to be ravaging a countryside that's completely empty. <laughs> and no one will come. He's just like handing... Oh, no. sorry. Uh, no, that's okay. He's just handing out posters that just say, like, it's all like this World War II, like, propaganda look, but it just says they'll get bored. They'll get bored. <laughs> exactly. Sparta, they'll get bored. Um, exactly. <laughs> just a picture of a wall. <laughs> um, because no one will come out to fight them, and we know Spartans. They All they want to do is fight, right? This is, like, their stereotype, right? Um, but They're again being, like, that nice guy. Yeah. Um, but spoiler alert, uh, this war lasts another 30 years, so uh, that Whoops. does not work. All right, so... Not the best plan. <laughs> sadly, a few few of the farmers that end up moving into Athens really have any friends or family to stay with, um, and so they're really displaced. They end up finding shelter in temples and shrines, or even spending summers living in guard towers along those long walls. Yeah. All right, so... Between Athens and Piraeus, uh, the population is said to have tripled at this time. So we have a huge overcrowded population stuck in a small area past capacity, reliant only on food coming in from the outside. So this sounds great, right? This sounds familiar. This sounds like a recipe for success. Really healthy, right? Super healthy. Um, Yeah, imagine being that kind of quarantine. All right. This sounds super duper great. So the first year of the war actually saw remarkably few war casualties. So Pericles' thing seems to working out pretty well. He makes one of his epic speeches um, that literally takes up pages, absolute freaking pages, in uh, the account by Thucydides. And I'll show you guys some of the books I've been using for this later. Um, so you're still on screen. Oh, later. I'm yeah. Sorry. No, later. I'll do it later. Um and that, uh, so Thucydides, <laughs> this is going to be great. Say it five times Thucydides, fast. Thucydides, 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 says, that year it is agreed to have been otherwise unprecedentedly free from sickness, and such few cases as occurred all turned to this. Oh, oh boy. boy. I'm actually going to stop sharing so you can see my dramatic, um, my dramatic read of this because I'm very proud of it. Alrighty. So Thucydides claims that the sickness originally comes from Ethiopia through Egypt, so kind of a southern, more southern Africa, and into many of the islands in Greece. It first hit the port at Piraeus, but traveled quickly to the heart of Athens. Um, the plague is incredibly infectious, and of course, hit the new overcrowded populations first. Mm. Lovely. The bodies of dying men lay one upon another, and half-dead creatures reeled about the streets and gathered round all the fountains in their longing for water. 
The sacred places at which they had quartered themselves were full of corpses, of persons that had died there, just as they were, for the disaster passed all bounds, men not knowing what was to become of them, because utter careless of everything, whether sacred or profane. It was a great old time. Like a great summer. Uh, pretty great. Spend your summer in sunny acid. Speaking of which, I will share my screen again. And you can see this great, uh, this great painting done in the 1600s of the Plague of Athens. Oh. Ah, why Pinterest? Why you got to do that to me? Mine does the same. It's fine. So please note all the bodies lying over top of each other in pain and agony. And eh, that messed up. That looks horrifying. I'll get back to it. So Thucydides, uh, because he's really, really interested in especially his own recollections and his own documents, he wants to put the things down that he thinks are going to be really important for people in the future. Um, so what were strategies work? What words really uh, boost morale and get people going? Um, but also how people behave in a plague, how people react in something like this. So he said, in general, there were a lot of people that got sick and died, but there were also people who recovered. And so he sees kind of differences in behavior in everybody. Um, in general, there was a complete lack of fear of the law. And because of a fear of contagion, people would really stop caring for the sick and not prepare the dead for burial. The dead were left in piles to rot in mass graves, um, even though pyres were usually the form of funerals at this time so that means like cremation essentially uh he even said that some would they would find funerals that were already going on and like toss their bodies on pyres that were already happening that is like a whole new level of a party crash. basically it's like cool it's an after party yeah it's like oh you're having a funeral neat <laughs> bring out your dead bring dead. out your dead i think we're gonna have a lot of bring out your dead jokes uh so those who... S I'm not quite not dead. dead yet. Might pull through. You will be in a minute. Be I feel happy. <laughs> uh, so those who survived and recovered were stated to believe that they were invincible um, and did start caring for the ill, but also believed they would never die from anything else ever. Because um, <laughs> I survived this. I'm fine now. It's great. It's cool. I'm gonna. The gods hath infused me with immortality. I'm great now. It's cool. Okay, so on one hand, okay, because if they survive it, they probably do have short-term immunity to it. I mean, you, I guess with some diseases, not really, but maybe. Yeah. I guess I shouldn't say that until I know what this disease actually was, which I'm super curious <laughs> about. But, like, in a way, maybe they had short-term immunity, but just not that no. long-term. You know, not eternal. <laughs> you're, you're still going to get stabbed, mister. Uh, <laughs> I, I was going to try and come up with... Yeah, Caesar. <laughs> I don't know what a regular old Greek name would be, but like... Uh, Theodotus. Mr. Auditus. Um, <laughs> Nick. <laughs> Nick. Nick Auditus. Chad Auditus. So All right. Anyway. So... 
we have the people, we have some other groups of people who saw death around them, literally bought piles of bodies, and basically went YOLO and did whatever they pleased, uh, spreading, uh, spending quickly and enjoying themselves. Uh, to quote Thucydides, fear of gods or law of man, there was none to restrain them. As for as for the first, they judged it to be just the same whether they worshipped them or not, as they saw all alike perishing. And for the last, no one expected to be brought to trial for his offenses, but each felt that a far severer sentence had already passed upon them and hung ever over their heads. And before this fell, it was only reasonable to enjoy life a little. <laughs> Basically, this is the end of the mm-hmm. world. I'm gonna do what the heck I want. And come Basically. for me. Hey, that's a picture of Greece over there. Oh, nice. <laughs> Sorry, I just realized that was there. That cat is thinking about the plague. That's the cat I fed spaghetti to. That's Aww. so cute. Oh my god. I want to be a cat that you feed spaghetti to. <laughs> Which... <laughs> what a sweet valentine. <laughs> It's, uh, quarantine is, is making me real hungry, you guys. Quarantine is getting to us all. If we all seem a little socially awkward right I've now. I've got cabin fever. Yeah. He's got cabin that fever. That came up we haven't as been around people trending on my YouTube yesterday, and I totally watched it. The cabin fever song from Muppet Treasure Island. From, from the Muppet's Treasure Island. Have you seen the lady that goes, the fat and sassy lady? <laughs> I know, just go be yes. in the house eating get pastry and getting all sassy. fat and sassy. Eat some soup and bread. Fat and, get all sassy. Fat and sassy. She is all of us. I. <laughs> She's so amazing. <sighs> I love her so much. Oh, anyway, so let's let's turn. Uh, so as many Greeks did, they turned to prophecy. Uh, because religion, you know, in times of trouble, many turn to religion. Um, and they really felt the gods had abandoned them. When I find myself in times of trouble, an oracle comes to me. And an oracle speaks words of wisdom. A Dorian war shall come, and with it pestilence. Uh, which is exactly what the prophecy said. Uh, and so they really felt that it was that their fault. Because Dorian, uh, in some instances, means Sparta. And unfortunately, though, the words for pestilence and famine are really, really similar to each other. So people actually started having debates about whether it meant actually what they were going through or whether it didn't mean that at all. Uh, it's kind of a lose-lose yeah, situation basically. either way, isn't it? She meant the bread was going to run out. Uh, so <laughs> It's not our fault. Thucydides comments, I suppose, however, if another Dorian war... Uh, should afterwards come upon us and a famine should happen to accompany it, the verse will probably be read accordingly. <laughs> yes, I'd imagine so. Thank you for that contribution. Yes, thanks. Well, it basically, he's basically means, like, people are going to read that however they choose to read prophecies, as they usually do. All right, so deeply demoralized by this plague, I don't, you know, can't think of why, um, and being forbidden to go out and march against Sparta, because Sparta... Sparta's still out around Sparta-ing, um, and Athens is getting really pissed off about this, but uh, Sparta eventually flees because they're worried about catching the plague. Um, which is... That's one way to win a war. <laughs> I'm just gonna say. Send out a victim on a horseback. Be a next, time, rider. next time you find yourself in a war, just go... 
sick. Oh, dear. Yeah. All right. So, very, very stubborn and really wanting to get their fight on. Um, Athenians vote out Pericles. Boom. An attempt to get peace with Sparta. Yay! However, not much happened after he was voted out because the new leaders they voted in sucked worse. <laughs> so they voted Pericles back in. And yay. yay! But I have to quote from my ancient Greece history textbook, which we will link. Boo. Oh, shut <laughs> How rude. Um, which we will link on the show notes. Uh, but this this quote just made me laugh a lot. It said, so they voted Pericles back in. Then he caught the plague and died, leaving the Athenians to their own devices. Boo. How, how could you do such a thing? <laughs> just like, come on, man. And then he went and died. And then he went up and died, leaving Jeez. the Athenians to their own devices. So the Athenians are, nah. Not doing so great. Um, the plague returns. Playing with their fidget spinners? Hmm? Playing with their fidget spinners? Uh, ancient Greek fidget spinners. They're all shaped like little columns. Their own devices. Their own devices. <laughs> their, own... <laughs> their own cell phones. Uh, their their yeah. own... I. This is the iPhone XBII. <laughs> or I was going to make some kind own of device. joke about like Ionic, like iOS, but it's like the Ionic column. I-O-N. 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 <laughs> so the plague returned at least twice in 429 and 426, and Athenian society kind of just... That's not in my notes, but I think that's basically what happened. Uh, many of the upper class died, and when they left money in their wills, it ended up all going to lower class relatives, so there was just real big changes in fortune for a lot of people. Uh, um, and of course, the Athenians decided to take this out on anyone who was not originally born in Athens, and people who had pretended to be Athenian during the whole plague, they arrested them, and sometimes they enslaved oh, them. Oh. The Athenians, super great on the whole freedom and democracy thing. It seems like a great way to solve problems. Yeah, enslavement. Great. Yeah. Mm. Um... Solves all the world. So because of this, there's a huge decline of people of soldiering age, both from people who died during the plague and because, you know, less Athenians, because they're letting less people become citizens. And so there's a huge fall in moral and political strength, and Athens never really recovers. And it pretty much lost its place as a real big Grecian military and political superpower. Yay. Mm. Power. Wow. Neat. So what was the plague, though? All right. Yes. Like, do we know what it was? Let's talk about the plague. Let's, oh, let's talk about the okay, plague. Let's talk about it. <laughs> All right. So I haven't gotten to its symptoms yet, you guys. It's, uh... Let's dig in. Oh, yeah. Those. So it's estimated that the plague killed between 75 and 100,000 people, yes. which is a lot in your ancient historical town. Uh, according to Thucydides, these are its effects and symptoms. Um, and uh, this is a warning for those of you who might easily be grossed out by such things. I am using it in Thucydides' kind of old-timey, rather charmingly uh, verbose language, but this gets a bit gross. So, warning. I need to hear a Thucydides voice, I think. Yeah. Like a grizzled people. Historian so how does this sound? Does this sound like a good Thucydides? All yes, righty. Yes. I am telling my grandchildren what the plague was like. 
people in good health were all of a sudden I attacked. I think that's Italian. Hmm? No, I was getting Russian Irish. <laughs> I think this is more my prospector voice. Oh. oh, okay. Well, we're good okay. with that. Keep right. going. Or you could do it, Allison. You could do it like a rambling, like back in my day. Or I could do a like uh, BBC voice. Do the BBC. All right, we're doing the BBC, the BBC. voice. Uh, Thucydides' plague symptoms. People in good health were all of a sudden attacked by violent heats in the head and redness and inflammation of the eyes, the inward parts, such as the throat or tongue, becoming bloody and emitting an unnatural and fetid breath. These symptoms were followed by sneezing and hoarseness, after which the pain soon reached the chest, producing a hard cough. When it fixed in the stomach, it upset it, and discharges of bile of every kind named by physicians ensued, accompanied by a very great distress. In most cases, also an ineffectual retching followed, producing violent spasms, which in some cases ceased soon after, and in others much later. Eternally, the body was not very hot to touch, nor pale in its appearance, but reddish, living and breaking out into small pustules and ulcers. But eternally it burned, so the patient could neither bear to have him clothing or linen of even the lightest description, or even, or indeed, to be otherwise than stark naked. <laughs> oh my gosh. This has been Alison Swanson for the BBC. <laughs> oh, okay. there's more, but uh, so uh, oh. one of the uh, one of the things that he noticed is that people were so thirsty and people were so the the fever was so high that the neglected sick, so people who really didn't have anybody to care for them, was just kind of chucked into cold water to help the fever. Um, but they also had an unquenchable thirst. And besides this, the miserable feeling of not being able to rest or sleep never ceased to torment them. If they got past the fever stage, which usually lasted seven to eight days, they usually had little strength left in them. But if they passed this stage, the disease descended further into the bowels, inducing, mm. inducing a violent ulceration there, accompanied by severe diarrhea. This brought on weakness, which was generally fatal so dehydration then right uh that would have to be dehydration sounds like a lot of things um well i mean like the the weakness oh, after yeah absolutely there was a lot of dehydration it sounds like so even those that did survive uh Thucydides notes that they had they had marks or losses to their extremities such as their Ooh. fingers their toes and their privy parts and their eyes, um, and s- and their, their eyes, s- some Blist- their eyes, like blisters. In so their loss, eyes? loss. No, like they would be gone. They would like so- loss of sight, loss of and and pustules and loss of um, fingers and toes. Some apparently completely lost their memory, too. So there's is it leprosy? I saw. <laughs> so the weirdness. So the probably the oddest thing, um, or the thing that a lot of modern. Uh, people look to as odd in this particular uh, epidemic is that carrion birds or other carrion animals that originally feasted on the dead sickened too and then after that either left them alone completely or left the city entirely so imagine this you've got 
That's piles of bodies, but no vultures, no carrion birds, because the bodies are too sick. So, long and the short of it, and Jill, feel free to speed up this bit in the way that you would speed up, like, uh, the symptoms of a, uh, on a commercial. Um, (laughs) fever, redness, and inflammation of the eyes, sore throat leading to bleeding and bad breath, sneezing, loss of voice, coughing, vomiting, pustules and ulcers on the body, extreme thirst, insomnia, and diarrhea. So... (laughs) Risks of the plague of Athens may include, yeah. (laughs) Um, Symptoms of the plague of Athens may include... Uh, So what causes these things? Nothing completely lines up with what we know of disease now or um, in the past. Uh, There was a long time when scholars just kind of assumed it was some form of bubonic plague. Heyo! But a lot of them have since reconsidered. Um, Now, let's see. There's always the possibility that the disease is a known one, but that it's just morphed over time so that the the symptoms no longer match up. Um, but the known diseases that have been speculated have been typhus, measles, smallpox, even toxic shock syndrome, which I thought you only got from tampons. No, you can get it other ways. It's when your system gets poisoned, basically. Okay. Yeah. So you can get it from, like, all sorts, you can, I mean, you could get it from bubonic plague. Okay. Like, yeah. when they would lance the boils if that infection got into your so bloodstream. So it's an additional it's infection, like a... basically. Okay. Yeah. It's a, it's a form of sepsis. Okay. So Thucydides said that the plague initially came from African ports. So it's even been suspected that um, something from um, more southern Africa, so Ebola or even another viral hemorrhagic fever has been suggested. So let's go through the main theories and you guys can debate on which one you think it might be. Uh, so the kind of interesting thing is that until relatively recently, there hasn't been any other corroboration besides just historic accounts that this thing actually happened um, until the literal 1990s. Um, yeah. That's my life. I know. I remember this. Not yours. I don't, I don't know. If, it was 1994, 1995. Hannah, do you... Were you? I was born in 1994. Cool. So. I was four in 1994. <laughs> I was older than that. Ooh. Um. So 1994, 1995. Uh, there was a first excavation of a mass grave just outside of Athens Historic Cemetery, where they were going to build a metro station. Like you do. Um. Wait, did the metro station? I think get so. Built? Um. It's Kara. I cannot pronounce modern Greek stuff. Uh, Karamakos? Mm. Mm. Um, but the they held... Uh, the mass grave held nearly 1,000 tombs. And there Whoa. was one shaft-shaped grave that held 240 remains, at least 10 of which were children. Aww. There were no layers of soil in between the bodies. Archaeologists note that there were really, really few grave goods, and what ones there were were really, really cheap and simple, um, and many of the remains were probably put there within days of each other. So, what could this be? Um, Now, there are three main theories that I think are pretty interesting that I want to talk about. Um, The first one is typhus. the University mm. of Maryland has an ongoing medical conference that it dedicates to notorious case histories. So they have a 
they have a conference every year where they talk about a notorious like so or a big old event or medical uh thing and 1999's was completely devoted to the plague of athens awesome oh spirit fingers yeah and so they so the whole conference um had kind of a their main theory was epidemic typhus fever and so the Mm. dr david durock uh who's from duke university said it's the best explanation because it hits hardest at times of war it has about a 20 percent mortality rate it kills the victim after about seven days and it sometimes causes a striking complication, gangrene at the tips of the fingers and toes. Mm. Oh. So yeah, that, does it cause blindness? I actually don't know. Um, I would look, so typhus is a very big theory. Now the next one is typhoid, which are two different oh, good things. Old typhoid yep. Mary. So the symptoms somewhat coincide, um, but they're a little bit different. Symptoms for typhoid are high fever, chills, uh, weakness, diarrhea, headaches, muscle pain, lack of appetite, constipation, stomach pains, and in some cases, a rash of flat, uh, flat rose-colored spots. <laughs> oh. Ooh. And actually... That sounds intriguing. It does, but I will point out that in Thucydides' thing, he did mention that the bodies were not hot to mm-hmm. the touch. Yeah, but... Didn't he also say the... Oh. Um, now, extreme symptoms of typhoid can include intestinal perforation or hemorrhaging and delusions and confusion. So, but there are some significant differences. Uh, typhoid doesn't transfer to scavenger animals. Um, and the fever goes by much... Like, is much more gradual and goes through a lot more days than the one from the Plague of Athens. Um... And it's most commonly transferred in crowded, unsanitary conditions. Hence, Typhoid Mary. Yep, getting all yeah. her, her poopy hands all over that ice cream. Woo. Um, so it coming from the mostly rural Africa doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, unless it came from somewhere mm-hmm. else. Uh, so in 2005, DNA analysis, our old friend... Um, it wouldn't be an episode without some DNA. Hey. It would not. Um, it was done on one of the skeletal remains that was found in the plague pit. And the Greek archaeologists said that they found evidence of salmonella enterica. Salmonella enterica. Which causes typhoid. However, many other archaeologists dispute these findings. Um, saying that it might be a strain of salmonella. And I'm going to hold up... Uh, <laughs> my plush salmonella yeah. for you all i have a collection of plush microbes that will be brought out as show and tell during this whole thing um so salmonella um mm-hmm. question what were the symptoms of typhus versus typhus um typhus i actually don't um have those all listed but the doctor said the ones that coincide most strongly are the mortality rate how it coincides pretty much exactly with the mortality rate for the plague of athens and that it kills a victim after seven days and the gangrene so it's trying to match it specifically up to those um mm-hmm. but uh what other archaeologists have have really contested the results because they say it might be another strain of salmonella but probably not typhoid just because it doesn't match up enough 
with uh, the stated symptoms, and that the area where the bodies were found had had a lot of contamination in antiquity, including by hogs, who are apparently notorious carriers of salmonellas. Oh. Hogs, man. Well, what are you going to do with that, then? They're all over the Now, place. the most interesting one that I think is the case, because this is a more recent theory, is that it could be a strain of Ebola or other viral hemorrhagic fever. I like this one. I like Ebola. I could see... Oh, there he is. Here's my Ebola. He is very cute. Looking like E.T. He's very scary This is me. my Ebola Looks Zaire. Like a worm. Because, of course, I would name my Ebola Zaire. Because that's the, that's the scientific name. Anyway. Huh. All right. Wait, does Ebola ever have a rash, though? Let's get to that. So, some of Thucydides' descriptions have led scholars to believe the disease might be a viral hemorrhagic fever. Akin to Ebola. Um, this being the really, really strong person-to-person spread that Thucydides noticed that, um, and that's something that they notice a lot in the more recent Ebola outbreaks, is that how very virulent it is in person-to-person spread and the great give of care, the great threat of caregivers to the sick and the dead. Um, and it's a lot more strong in uh, things like Ebola than it would be for either typhus or typhoid. Uh, now, the Spartans were not affected, even though they were warring nearby for quite some time. They did flee for fear of the plague, but as far as we know, there's no evidence that they ever caught it. Um, now, the most interesting thing is that some translations of Thucydides have found a very specific symptom that they think is actually mistranslated and might be translated to something like hiccups, which is a symptom that is very common or that has been noticed in Ebola victims in the most recent outbreaks. Oh, they get yeah. the hiccups? Great. Now I'm never going to be able to have the hiccups you... ever again. I'm going to be scared whenever I have the hiccups. <laughs> So um, they got the hiccups, and they think right. that is a good sign that it's Ebola? Well, or that it's, uh, because it's a historic case, people just keep on researching these tiny little details to see if they can match them up with any of these modern diseases, because really nothing matches up totally. Um, the other thing that, because uh, the, of these most recent Ebola outbreaks in 2012, 2014, um, Versus, I think, the initial ones, which were in the 70s. Um, There's been some noted new symptoms, or ones that they may have not noticed before, including um, effects on the genitals and eyes. Especially the people that were able to recover did have, like, noted effects to them. Mm. And this is so sounding that's... more and more convincing. I think you have me sold I know. Maybe, yeah, maybe it's because this is the one... I think this is the one that I find most interesting, so maybe that's why I'm convincing you that way. Um, and so there was a really thriving ivory trade. Um, in fact, they would make giant... There In ancient Greece, there was never a more thriving ivory trade than during the period of Pel- the Peloponnesian War because they would make these giant statues out of ivory coming from Africa. And mm-hmm. so they had a really, really strong connection to those areas of Africa where the kind of monkeys are that would later on be the um, animal to human transfer of these kind of viral yeah. hemorrhagic fevers. Ooh. It all makes perfect sense. And and let me have let me I have another I have another bit of evidence. 
Um, a later source from antiquity, Lucretius. Because hey. I have all the I have all these. This is what it happens when you take a lot of Greek and Roman history classes and you never get rid of your books because you're a hoarder. Uh, a later source from antiquity, Lucretius, who is a Roman writer and poet, he's writing about 300 years later, so about 100 BCE. Um, he also describes the Athenian plague um, as having bloody or dark discharges from the body. That is quite compelling for what does that sound like that's ebola um, that's ebola i say as a medical doctor and an archaeologist <laughs> that that is ebola, ebola. <laughs> and um, it belongs in a museum <laughs> so uh lucretius was a great admirer of akron who was a greek physician um who is said to have traveled to athens to help with the plague in 430 and died doing it um, unfortunately, none of Akron's original writings survived. They survived the 300 years to Lucretius' time, but they have not survived the 2,000 and some years to us. Uh, so unfortunately, we can't corroborate that. Uh, so we will never really know what caused the plague of Athens. Um, most diseases don't leave really imprints on remains, or some diseases don't, I should say. Mm -hmm. And after two millennia, even less. Uh, so a lot of the diseases like the viral hemorrhagic fever, they can't be tested by current modern scientific means. Boom. So on the one hand, I think the typhus has a really, like there's a strong, strong case for typhus, less of a strong case for typhoid. Um, but I'm really intrigued by the viral hemorrhagic fever. Yeah. yeah my boy, my void. my vote goes towards the hemorrhagic fever and Ebola. Just, but what about the rash? The rash could yeah. be a multitude of things. Could be like even a heat rash. Maybe. You know? Yeah, they said they were said to have a really, really high temperature. So, hmm. so I wanted to end this on a little bit of a, a less happy but more poignant note. Mm -hmm. um, so it's gonna and make so me cry. To, Don't cry. No. I'm maybe. I cried a little, but it's okay. I'll hold it together. Jillian, All hold right. my hand. Wait, don't. I put that in my mouth. <laughs> she, just, she just stuck a pen towards me so I could hold on to that. Thank you. Alrighty, I'll so comforting. I'm going to show my... Oh, am I... Do I not have... Here we go. Alright, I'm sharing my screen again. Oh, Alright, so... so many... Um, most Greek funeral rites included cremation kind of as we talked about earlier. Um, so very few skeletal remains really exist from this time period. Um, now, one of the very, per, uh, one particular set um, found in the excavation in the 90s had a really, really well-preserved skull. Uh, and scientists made a replica of her skull and completed this reconstruction. Oh, wow. uh, so this is uh, Myrtis, whom they called. Um, she was an 11-year-old girl and given the dress and hairstyle of her time. In 2010, she was named a friend of the United Nations in the hopes that her story can help cure preventable diseases. Uh, she wrote a letter to the world as a part of this campaign. And so this is the text that was on their website. My death was inevitable. In the fifth century BC, we had neither the knowledge nor the means to fight deadly illnesses. However, you, the people of the 21st century, have no excuse. You possess all the necessary means and resources to save the millions of people. 
to save the lives of millions of children like me who are dying of preventable and curable diseases. 2,500 years after my death, I hope that my message will engage and inspire more people to work and make the Millennium Development Goals a reality. Listen to me. I know what I'm saying. Never forget that I'm much older and therefore much wiser than you. So. Very poignant. Sad. And I think that's kind of why we're doing this podcast, too, is to kind of not just to add something special and kind of entertaining to fill the void to fill to fill the boredom of you know staying inside and stuff but to make if you're listening hopefully to make you feel better and let you know that humanity has been through this before because really our generation hasn't but this has been going on for a long time so we're definitely not alone in history and also we do have tools to be able to fight these things and we do know how they happen and that knowledge makes us responsible. So hopefully that's an encouragement to you from Mertis to practice social distancing and stay in your homes if you're able to. Understandably, not everyone is actually able to do that, um, especially because of professions, but mm-hmm. we do have a responsibility to each other. And those who are going out every day and risking their lives in those professions the doctors, the nurses, the scientists, everybody who's exposed, thank you very much for everything you're doing. It's truly appreciated. Um, and even, and not even, but, and those who are working in uh, grocery stores and gas stations and uh, libraries and, well, they're closed now, but uh, who are working in the essential businesses, we really thank you as well. I worked in a grocery store for almost 10 years. I know it's not an easy job in the best of circumstances. I can only imagine it in the worst of circumstances. So thank you for all you're doing there. Yeah, please listen to our medical professionals. Do what they recommend and stay safe and stay home. Uh, This is Allison signing out. This is Jill signing out. This is Hannah signing out. And have a cup of tea. It'll make you feel better. Yes. Good night. Good night, everybody. And that is the end of our first episode of Quarantine. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, please feel free to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And to ensure that you hear all of our Quarantine episodes, please subscribe to All Tea and History. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can do so by liking us on Facebook or following us on Instagram and Pinterest under the handle all the tea, at all the tea in history and on Twitter at all the histor tea. Uh, and if there is a topic or scandal you'd like us to cover, you can send us that uh, through our email, all the tea in history at gmail.com. And for more information on this and any and all of our upcoming series or episodes, please take a moment to visit our website, all the tea Also, on a personal note, my co-hosts and I want to talk to you about something that's very important and very personal to us, and that is the museums and cultural institutions of not only the United States, but all over the world. Uh, This pandemic that we're fighting right now is threatening many of these incredibly important institutions, and according to multiple news sources, nearly one-third of the museums closed right now will not reopen once the quarantine is lifted due to funding problems. 
Uh, so please consider supporting your local museum, historical society, or cultural institution to ensure that we keep our history safe and available for all those generations to come. Uh, thank you so much. Be safe and good night.